You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Diversity is a moral imperative and it's an ethical imperative, but in cybersecurity, it has to be part of the mission. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. On this week's show, I've got the story of California upholding restrictions on stingrays. Ben covers the ongoing issues with facial recognition software. And later in the show, my conversation with David Forsey from the Aspen Institute on their new cybersecurity collaborative network. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. And now, a message from CyberBit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then, you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need CyberBit. CyberBit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills, all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com cyberwire. All right, Ben, we are back. And uh, of course, we took a a scheduled break over the holidays, but we took an additional uh, week off and that was unscheduled uh, for an interesting reason. Why don't you share with us uh, what happened there, Ben? Yeah, so I uh, became one of the 20 million or so Americans who tested positive for COVID-19. So it was was an interesting experience. You know, I, I obviously didn't have it as bad as people who've lost their lives uh, or, you know, people who've had really serious illnesses. But I was hospitalized for a few days for some low oxygen levels. Uh, Let's just say some stuff got into my lungs, uh, which was not Mm. a pleasant experience. So I was in the hospital for about uh, 72 hours and very thankful to be back, thankful to be out, uh, getting a little bit better every day. Um, And, you know, just very thankful to all the support I got, both from, you know, the medical professionals, a shout out to to the University of Maryland medical system. They were amazing from family and friends and and from the whole uh, CyberWire family as well for giving me some moral support. Uh, So, yes, it was uh, an unscheduled break. Um, I'm glad to be back. (laughs) Certainly not experience I'd, I'd recommend for anybody, but, um, you know, I think maybe it, it will give me some perspective and, and some insight on, you know, the probably the most important story happening in the world right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, of course, uh, we are relieved and happy to have you back. And uh, as our Maryland governor says, wear your damn mask. Yes. Wear your damn mask. Uh, <laughs> when you have a chance to get vaccinated, definitely get vaccinated. Yeah. I, I yeah, think that's the well, best we can do. Yep. Yeah. Well, we were, like I said, we we're so happy that you are uh, well on your way to being uh, recovered. And uh, yeah, you, you, it was, uh, well, it's just, it's never good news when someone uh, you care about comes down with something. But 
You know, we were all, uh, it, was a, it was a bit of a kick in the gut for all of us here, and me personally, just because, uh, you know, to have someone so close to you come down with something like this. Uh, I believe you, you know, you sent me a, a, a message from the ER saying, well, Dave, we're not recording tomorrow, and here's why. <laughs> I was like, oh, man. It shows how much I care about the podcast, that even uh, right, from the ER, right, I was right. thinking about our our no. loyal listeners. <laughs> right, exactly. Hadn't even sent a message to your wife or children yet. No, exactly. it was the podcast. Yeah, I'll tell my first parents thing. later, but it's all about the podcast. No, but uh, I, I, in all seriousness, the moral support was was a big lift, you know, just to yeah. hear from people that they were thinking about me and hoping for me to get better and people from all different walks of my life. I mean, that's what really did lift my spirits. Um, yeah. And the whole Cyberwire family, you, uh, of course, first and foremost, was very supportive. So yeah. I'm very, very thankful. All right. Well, speaking of the podcast, let's jump into this week's podcast. Uh, why don't you kick things off for us this week? So a new year and a new instance of facial recognition software potentially being racially biased. My hmm. story is actually an op-ed from the Washington Post that says unregulated facial recognition must stop before more black men are wrongfully arrested. And the op-ed is based on a story that was actually first published in the New York Times from the state of New Jersey. An individual named Niger Parks was accused of shoplifting candy and trying to hit a police officer with a car in New Jersey. This individual, Mr. Parks, was, of course, nowhere near the crime scene. He was 30 miles away. Uh, he had a perfect alibi because he happened to be uh, making a financial transaction at a Western uh, Union. So it was not him. Uh, what happened is the real perpetrator had given law enforcement a fake ID. Law enforcement ran that fake ID through their facial recognition system, and Mr. Park's name came up. Uh, hmm. and a warrant was issued for his arrest. He was uh, arrested and held in prison for 10 days. To make matters even worse, it was technology that actually kept him in prison for 10 days because New Jersey uses an algorithm instead of cash bail to figure out how much a risk somebody is to uh, the community. And because this individual had been arrested previously on drug charges, he had to sit in prison for a relatively long period of time, having not committed a crime. Wow. So this is the third such instance in the past year, the third high-profile story of facial recognition software falsely identifying Black men and those men being arrested and potentially prosecuted. And we now have a, a major societal problem here. And what the Washington Post is calling for is a, a policy change, that there should be a moratorium on facial recognition software as a federal policy or as a state and local policy until we figure out the racial biases of these algorithms. Uh, and I think the more of these types of stories we're going to get, there's going to be more of a movement to put a pause to this this type of technology. Obviously, it's very useful for law enforcement purposes. When it's used correctly and used lawfully, it certainly aids in apprehending actual criminals. But when you start to hear more of these stories of innocent people being caught up in the system because these algorithms are racially biased, I think it certainly behooves all of us to step back and take a look at what's going on. Yeah. And, you know, I, I guess it's worth noting, I mean, I certainly haven't heard any cases of uh, misidentification when it comes to white people. Have, have you? I have not. And this is the third high profile case of a, specifically a black man. And we had yeah. talked about one from Michigan previously on this podcast. Uh, somebody right. who also went through a harrowing experience of being falsely arrested. 
So this is a problem that is that is very specific. Mm. It's that something about these algorithms are misidentifying black men. And you know, when that leads to the consequence of an innocent person spending 10 days in jail and paying, you know, $5,000 in legal fees to defend himself, then that becomes an unacceptable problem. You know, luckily, Mr. Parks does have some legal recourse himself. So he, his family hired an attorney uh, and he is suing the county, New Jersey, for uh, a bunch of torts, including false imprisonment. He hasn't really specified exactly what relief he wants. I would, I would guess it might be monetary damages. But hopefully, you know, with the support of groups like the ACLU, he can get justice uh, for what happened to him. Right. But in a broader sense, now that we've identified this problem, it's, it's happened in a number of circumstances. I don't think it's acceptable for us to continue the use of this technology while this problem persists. You know, unless we really look under the hood and start to understand why this keeps happening. Mm. You know, when I saw that you were going to be talking about this story, it reminded me of another story I'd seen come by last year, which was uh, it was a study from Georgia Tech. And uh, oh, I'll link to a write-up on it. It's from the Streets Blog USA, which is a blog that covers uh, transit issues, uh, pedestrian issues, things like that. But talking about this study from Georgia Tech that found that um, automated vehicles may not detect darker-skinned pedestrians as often as lighter ones. They're between 4 and 10% less accurate when they encounter human figures with darker skin types, which I, you know, I, at the risk of sounding flippant here, it's you know, not only are you uh, more likely to be falsely accused of a crime, you're more likely to get run over by a car. It's just awful. I mean, it's awful that, you know, we've had a history of institutional discrimination in this country. Mm. Technology is an amazing tool. And, you know, when it's used for good, it could potentially be a way for us to get past some of this historical institutional discrimination. But now we're seeing that technology, largely because at its core, it's created by human beings, is perhaps just as racially biased as we are as people. Yeah, And, you know, it's just, it's something that I think, as technology develops, we can't, you know, as a matter of policy, allow technology to develop and become prevalent, particularly as it's used by government institutions, unless we take account of, of this very serious problem. I think racial equity has to be a part of the development of these technologies mm-hmm. and policymaking around these technologies. Yeah. You know, it can't just be sort of an afterthought after we have these high profile instances of people being falsely arrested. One of the things, one of the things that the researchers at Georgia Tech pointed out was that the training data that they use on these artificial intelligence systems, they use 3.5 times more examples of white people than black and brown people. So it would follow that they'd have more accuracy on white people than black and brown people. But, uh, there's no shortage of photos of black and brown people, right? There I mean, certainly are like, not. So, I mean, as you say, somebody's got to have their finger on the button to be equalizing these training things. I, I want to be careful to not be too sympathetic to the unconscious biases of the people who are doing this because I'm, I, I suspect they didn't set out to do bad. Absolutely right? not. Absolutely not. But, yeah. but the results are, are what they are. Right, right. And, you know, we were talking about this offline. You could say... 
sure, you know, the research subjects are going to be more white because uh, white people are, are still the majority in this country. Um, right. But, you know, part of taking racial equity into consideration with this technology is actively making decisions to augment that research. So whether it's mm-hmm. larger subsamples of African-Americans or people of other races, you have to make decisions with that context in mind. It has to be part of all levels of policymaking related to artificial intelligence. Yeah. And you'd think that we've been at this long enough, that this has come up enough over the past, even just the past couple of years, that anybody working on this would be laser focused on making sure that they had taken this bias out of their work. And yet here we are. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you think so. You know, part of it is that, you know, the technologists themselves aren't, not to use, this is certainly an overused term, but they might not be woke enough to realize uh, how prevalent these uh, racial biases are. And policymakers in some instances might look the other way because, you know, for something like facial recognition, it's such an effective law enforcement tool in their minds that, perhaps they're willing to tolerate a little bit of racial bias. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So that's why, I, you know, I think we kind of have to attack this from all angles, both while the technology is being developed, you know, kind of institutionalize that. And then as a policy matter, make sure that if a department adopts a technology, that it's been thoroughly vetted uh, to make sure that these types of incidents don't happen in the future. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, it's certainly uh, an interesting story. Um, My story this week comes from the Lawfare blog uh, written by Malin Fiddler, uh, and it's titled Court Upholds Legal Challenge Under California Statewide Stingray Law. Ben, you know, there's if there's nothing we love more on this show than a than a stingray story. And right? then when you combine <laughs> California and stingrays, this <laughs> yes, is yes, very on brand for us. Your your dear hometown, mm-hmm. <laughs> home state of California, and stingrays. This is a, an interesting read for a couple reasons, and I'm really looking forward to digging in here with you because I think this is. I mean, talk about a a, a conversation about policy and how policy gets done and policy gets made. So. Uh, if we rewind here, I'm going to try to give an overview here, and, and please step in, correct me if I'm wrong or if I misspeak. But California, uh, back in 2015, put in place a state law which governed the use of cell site simulators, so stingrays. These are the devices uh, we've spoken of that are able to simulate a cell phone tower, and law enforcement can use them to basically track the use of mobile devices within a certain area. And, of course, these are controversial because not only do they capture the people who they may be targeting, but they capture everybody in the area. All of us, yes. All of us, right. So there's a a privacy issue there. Uh, They were originally uh, developed and sold to federal-level law enforcement for the reasons of, of stated reasons of fighting things like terrorism, Uh, but more and more they've trickled down and are being used for local petty crime kinds of things, right? right. Somebody, somebody somebody shoplifts from a local 7-Eleven and, and next thing you know, somebody's using a stingray to track them down yeah. and so on and so forth. So the California law uh, required that localities have a real transparency regimen in place here. They had to have, before they implemented this sort of technology, before they purchased it, they had to have uh, public meetings about it. It had to be 
part of their local process. Uh, so it had to be up front. The public had to be able to comment about it ahead of time. Do I have it right so far? You do. Yeah, you do. So this was a statute that passed in 2015 in California. The author of this article, and I believe she's correct, says that this is the only law of this kind in the country where, you know, it's not about mandating a warrant for the usage of a stingray in an individual circumstance. It's a broader requirement for these sort of procedural steps that have to be taken, a, a, a public hearing, a chance for the general public to weigh in on this policy. So that's exactly right. Yeah. So what happened over time is that some of the localities found ways to massage how they <laughs> followed this regulation. Yeah, and of course, it that, mildly, yes. <laughs> and that led to some lawsuits, which is, you know, how these things get tested. And uh, the upshot of it is that the courts have upheld it. Am I still on track here, Ben? You are absolutely on track. And the lawsuit came from the city of Vallejo, which is kind of on the outer stretches of the San Francisco Bay Area. And they did sort of try to cut corners. Basically, uh, the city of Vallejo put in a usage policy for stingrays and a privacy policy. That's all they did. They didn't actually have any public hearings. They thought that they were complying with this law because this law really hadn't been enforced. Um, Mm. But it turns out that the courts... Uh, agreed with the plaintiffs who said that the law mandated that there have to be these public proceedings on the record following, you know, public meetings laws so that the public gets a chance to to weigh in and, you know, at least have the chance to become aware of what policies are being made. Yeah. Now, the thing that really interested me here that I, I had not considered that this story points out is how a law like this changes the equation when it comes to how a device like a stingray is considered by the general public, how it moves the reaction to a stingray from being reactive from happening after the device has been used, someone has been charged with a crime, that sort of thing, which they they point out in this article is a slow process it attempts to take that process and move it to the head of the line. So before someone, something happens to someone, as a community, people have a chance to talk about this, to decide whether or not this is something we want. I think that's a really interesting point from a policy point of view. Yeah. So as this article, and, and I think this gets at what you're saying, what the article says is one of the problems with Fourth Amendment jurisprudence is Oftentimes, the only chance you get to challenge this type of surveillance is after you've already been arrested and prosecuted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we want to have a chance to challenge these types of policies before you're behind bars and fighting for your freedom. So, you know, I think that was <laughs> that's really the purpose of this law is to allow the public to weigh in in a situation where they're not facing criminal prosecution and are desperate uh, and are you know only fighting for themselves. So I think it helps alleviate, it's sort of a prophylactic that helps alleviate one of the biggest problems with the Fourth Amendment is that you can really only challenge it after you've been caught uh, and have to go through a, a criminal proceeding. Right. So that's what I think is, is so interesting about this law. And, you know, I think it's good to see that the court is is taking it seriously. Oftentimes you have public meetings laws where it just becomes a, a box checking exercise. We see this a lot uh, on the federal level with administrative law, where they kind of go through the motions of allowing notice and comment before a final rule goes into place. But it's not as stringent and you know enforcement as it potentially could be. So it's good to see that the court in California is requiring localities to take this seriously. Yeah. 
Yeah. No, it's it's an interesting uh, interesting article, and they, they say here that um, other cities in California may follow suit, uh, I guess literally suit, uh, <laughs> or be yeah. sued, or, yep. you know, uh, that, uh, you know, people are going to challenge this, uh, and it may, uh, it may make its way around the nation as other states and localities uh, follow what's going on here. Uh, interesting little side note, they, they mentioned that Harris Corporation, who's the, the main manufacturer of Stingrays, they've said that they're going to stop supplying local agencies. I don't know what that really means. I mean, my sense is that there are a lot of these things out there and that if I'm a local organization and, and I want to use one, chances are I can, I don't know, call the state and borrow one or call, you know. Like, they probably figure out a way yeah. to obtain one, yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. But that seems to me probably mostly a PR kind of thing more than anything. But, yes, I think um, it's that the Harris Corporation does not want to be associated with the negative aspects of Stingray technology. Yeah. So uh, interesting article. Again, that's over in the uh, Lawfare blog. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, definitely one that is worth your time. And those are our stories this week. Of course, if you have any questions for us, uh, we would love to hear from you. We have a call-in number. It's 410-618-3720. That's 410-618-3720. You can also email us. It's caveat at thecyberwire.com. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with David Forsey. He is from the Aspen Institute, uh, and they have uh, an initiative called the Cybersecurity Collaborative Network. Interesting stuff. Here's my conversation with David Forsey. So the Aspen Institute is what many people would term a think tank, but we're not supposed to use that term uh, because really <laughs> what we specialize in is, while we do a lot of research and a lot of typical think tank work, where we really specialize is convening. It was founded many years ago. Uh, in Aspen, but our headquarters is in Washington, D.C., and we convene across a range of areas, we uh, CEOs, young entrepreneurs in various areas, and what the Aspen Cybersecurity Group does is not just convene chief information security officers, which, you know, a lot of groups do, but we also have, you know, Vince Cerf from Google. We have the general counsel at AIG and Apple. We've got the CEO of Northrop Grumman and Johnson & Johnson, two congressmen, Congressman Will Hurd and Congressman Jim Langevin, leading researchers, and then we have former directors of the NSA, Michael Hayden and Keith Alexander. So when this group speaks, we really try to speak with many different perspectives, and that's essential because what we're trying to do here is operationalize consensus solutions to big cybersecurity problems that affect multiple sectors, private sector and government, you know, big national security level cybersecurity problems. And when we speak with this many perspectives, 
the ideas we advocate for are less likely to run into the kind of Washington buzzsaw that often greets really great ideas in cybersecurity, if that makes sense. Yeah, it absolutely does. So, I mean, this is, uh, the publication is titled A National Cybersecurity Agenda for Resilient Digital Infrastructure. What, what was the impetus for creating this report? So obviously we have, there's a lot going on right now. We had uh, <laughs> an interesting year and we have a major transition in Washington coming up. We're going to have a new White House, we're going to have new Congress, new chairmanships and new staffers coming in and going out. There's gonna, it's got, about to be a lot of change in D.C., And we wanted federal policymakers specifically to be focused on areas where we thought we could really move the needle in the next term. So next two to four years, where are some areas where we can really make tangible progress? So that tends to be areas where there's already a foundation for a lot of success, but where, you know, we just need some oomph from the federal government to really scale success. So that's what we try and lay out here. Now, There are some things that we don't touch on for specific reasons. For instance, we don't speak really at all about offensive cyber operations, a lot of aspects of the black budget, because a lot of others are focused on that. And we actually feel like sometimes that gets a little too much attention and there needs to be a little more focus on Congress on the defensive aspect of national resiliency. Well, one of the things that caught my eye here in the report is that In the foreword, you begin by speaking about a public health crisis that took hold of London. Listeners to this show uh, know that I often find that to be a useful metaphor to compare cybersecurity to public health. Can you take me through your perspective on that aspect of it? The pandemic is it's an it's interesting timing to be discussing this because before the pandemic, many public health experts were warning for many years that we were going to hit a serious problem. And we finally did. And it was clear that we just didn't make the investment to prepare for it. And in cybersecurity, it's really the same way. It's like a a boiling frog, right? We have hospitals being hit every day. We have new breaches occurring every day. We now are in the midst of a solar wind investigation, which could end up being one of the more significant cyber attacks we've had. And yet we still just pay lip service to it. And we companies do not invest in the ways they should. Government does not invest in the ways they should. Now, I don't know who it was that said, show me your budget and I'll show you your priorities. Mm. And so we just want people to start treating it less like a problem, which often gets people to shut down. You know, we know that the cyber 9-11 uh, and cyber Pearl Harbor analogies just haven't really worked. They haven't moved the needle in terms of people's attention. And to start thinking it more as just the foundational infrastructure on which society depends. And it's just like water infrastructure, Right. No one would claim that we do not need water infrastructure to keep our water clean. It's the same thing. Digital data is water. Cybersecurity is the infrastructure that actually makes it work for us. So that's why we opened with that metaphor, if that makes sense. Do you suppose, I mean, we need something along the lines of of the EPA for, for cyber, an organization who's responsible for looking over those things? That's something that some people have recommended. Personally, we don't take a position on that in this report. Mm. Uh, Creating a whole new agency for nationwide and whole of society cybersecurity would not be something that's probably doable in the next term. And what we really want to focus on here is actionable things that can move the dial. Most, if not all agencies, do have offices that focus on their particular area of the problem in cybersecurity. But it's something that certainly should always be open for discussion. Well, there are five areas that you all focus on here in the report. Can, can we go through those together? We start with education and workforce development. 
And this is something a lot of people in the space are very familiar with. We have about 520,000 open cybersecurity roles in the United States today. And we just haven't made a lot of progress. You know, in the past, I think it's two years, our open positions have increased by 62%. And it's just outpacing our, our ability to actually fill these jobs. We start with the assumption that one of the reasons this is the case, one of the reasons we're not making more progress, is we're fundamentally restricting our view of cybersecurity talent, right? There's about 200 million people, I think it's 212 million people of working age in the United States. If just 0.2% of those people are capable and interested in performing cybersecurity roles, we have more than enough to fill 520,000 jobs. But the way a lot of organizations hire and search for cybersecurity talent it's kind of outdated and it really has a narrow view of who has potential, right? So a lot of open positions in cybersecurity, a lot of entry-level positions, they require a four-year degree and a CISSP certification. Well, CISSP is really a mid-level management certification. And a lot of people don't have access to the funding required to complete a four-year degree, despite the fact that many of those people would perform excellently in those roles. So what are the things we can do expand that talent aperture and make sure that, number one, companies are you know, reviewing their job qualifications to make sure they're not onerous. And I can tell you, when I speak with a lot of CISOs and a lot of companies about this, they will just nod their head vigorously. They go, yes, why are we requiring that? You know, right. So we, we, we just need to have them, you know, they just need to sit down with their HR folks and talk about that, right? And they need to have evidence that shows other companies have done it and it works. It's also things as simple as changing the language and job description. How you actually describe roles has an impact on who applies for them. Uh, and companies like Cisco and IBM that have changed their job descriptions have really seen an increase in the number of women and the number of people of color who are applying for these jobs. Because ultimately, diversity is a moral imperative and it's an ethical imperative. But in cybersecurity, it has to be part of the mission because we just can't fill these roles if all we go for are MIT grads with four-year degrees. That's the education piece. And, and what we get into here in this report is how the federal government can assist. Even things just like improving grant funding for a lot of the organizations that are already working on this. There's some really great organizations out there. Cyber.org, I'll shout out NPower. Really, they're doing great stuff. And they just need more funding to scale what they're already doing. So we go into things like that. Well, let's move on to public core resilience. What do you suggest there? So this is one of my favorites and one that depending on your listeners, they may be more or less familiar with. Basically, the internet runs on a foundation of hardware and software that no one person runs. So here we're talking about things like the domain name system, the border gateway protocol, the protocol that actually sends data zipping around the world, lets computers know where to send the data, things like public key infrastructure, the protocols that allow you to speak secretly with strangers online. These things have fundamental vulnerabilities, and no one person is in charge of closing those vulnerabilities. So this is an area where governments can show more leadership. Now, this is ultimately a private sector problem. The government and cyberspace are run by the private sector. But in some cases, government can shape incentives to make sure that we're doing the things that we already know need to be done. Solving the vulnerabilities that affect the public core are frequently not a technical problem. I'll tell you, I was just speaking earlier today with some folks about GPS receivers. Mm. So we know how to make GPS receivers that are much more resilient to spoofing and jamming. And this is important in the public core because position, navigation, and timing 
is a very important component of a lot of digital infrastructure. So we know how to make these receivers better, but a lot of customers aren't aware of the threats. And so they are not demanding that the GPS receiver manufacturers actually make more resilient receivers. Hmm. So what is the government role in increasing the awareness among customers so that they demand and create market demand for more resilient GPS infrastructure? So that's a lot of what the public core is about. It's generally a lot of areas where not one person is in charge and there's a big coordination problem. That's where we think the government can really play a role. Well, let's move on to supply chain security. Certainly uh, top of mind for a lot of folks as you and I record this today. Yes. So bottom line is, and, and we don't say this in the report, but if you read between the lines, we can't target supply chain interventions just based on country of origin. If you spend all your time focusing on Huawei and ZTE, you might overlook the fact that supply chain risks, and CISOs know this, are everywhere, including from U.S.-based companies such as SolarWinds. We talk about two levels of supply chain security, right? One is national level policy to ensure that we always have robust market competition so that companies are never dependent on insecure products. So that is the kind of Huawei scenario, not in the United States, but you know, in Europe, you have some companies that can simply only afford to use Huawei. You never want a situation where a company only has one option for a product, and therefore there's less incentive to make that product secure. So you can incentivize better security by incentivizing market competition. So that's kind of the national level. But then you just want to make sure that organizations are aware and are doing the proper best practices to manage their own supply chains. And you want to make sure that there's transparency into products so that organizations can do a better job managing their supply chain. And here we get into things, you know, making sure that things like the Software Bill of Materials project, which is ongoing at the National Telecommunications and Information Administration, to make sure that more and more people can have an ingredients list of what actually goes into a piece of software so that when a new vulnerability is detected and published as a CVE, a CISO can go and say, now, wait a second, am I running software that's affected by the CVE? Oh, I know I am because I have this ingredients list. So transparency is really important to make sure that organizations can manage their risk. And at a more national level, you want to make sure we have the government incentivizing market competition in the most critical sectors to ensure that there are market incentives for better security. And then the last two areas uh, you focus on out of the five are measuring cybersecurity and promoting operational collaboration. Can we go through those? Yeah, and I should point out that these are not in, uh, these are not in any particular order. Um, mm. These are all equally important in our minds. So measuring cybersecurity. So right now, we know where COVID-positive tests are taking place. We generally know which hospitals are at capacity, and we can make national, state, and local-level policy decisions based on that data. We have nothing like that in the cybersecurity space. We don't really know who's getting hit. We don't know why they're always getting hit. We don't know what resources they people have. We need a concerted government effort to start combining data collection so that we can start making evidence-based policy. Because if you're not making evidence-based policy, you're just throwing spaghetti and see what sticks. So um, that's essential going forward for the new administration is to really focus on how we can start actually measuring whether we're making an impact. And the place where we start is just the high-level data. Then we move on to the metrics. You know, there's a lot of good stuff going on in industry about developing metrics. And we feel the first step is for the government to start collecting higher level data, sharing that so researchers can determine whether policy is actually being effective. 
And then promoting operational collaboration is really about moving beyond the information sharing discussion to start coordinating joint action and planning between high capability actors in the private sector and high capability actors in the federal government. So this is to make sure that let's say a major company is about to launch a takedown operation of a uh, a botnet controlled by a criminal organization. You want to make sure that government agencies are aware, can coordinate their own takedown activities, and don't get in the way. Because if they move too early, they might tip the hand of the private sector organization and screw up the whole operation. So you want to make sure that all these people really know each other. And this might sound wishy-washy, but the fact is you want to start building friendships between, say, analysts at this bank and analysts at this government agency. Because Mm. that's when you start building the trust that's required to actually overcome a lot of the cultural barriers that exist here. It seems to me, and and let me know if you if you agree with this, that cybersecurity is one of the few areas that has managed in, in this topsy turvy political environment that we find ourselves to still have bipartisan support. It's hard to find someone who says that better cybersecurity is a bad thing. First of all, is, is, that, is that an accurate assessment? Well, you know, that's why it's it's really, when you compare it to, say, the disinformation, misinformation space, which we do touch on uh, in this, but we felt it deserved an entirely different report, there's less agreement there on what is bad and what is good. In cybersecurity, there's really full agreement on what we're trying to do. So I think that's why it makes it easier. And I think you you look no further than things like the U.S. Cyberspace Solarium Commission, which was uh, fully bipartisan. You look at the the recent National Defense Authorization Act, which had some really major uh, cybersecurity provisions in there that stuck in there to the end. And it hasn't been enacted yet, but it almost certainly will. And so I I think, I mean, you you hit the nail on the head. Everyone generally agrees on the goal. And that gets you a lot. It gets you quite a quite a bit of the ways, you know, where the disagreements tend to crop up is how we actually get there. What we're trying to do is point out some ways where there's generally a lot of agreement on even how we get there. Yeah, that's what we're trying to do here. And and what do you say to that person who's listening to this, who who has an interest in this sort of thing, would like to see these sorts of things move forward? You know, supports your efforts. How can they participate? Is it as simple as you know, reaching out to the representatives? First of all, they should always be fr- feel free to reach out to us. One of our roles is to act as a nexus for the cybersecurity policy community. So um, anyone who's interested should reach out to me, David Forsey at the Aspen Institute. Happy to talk to you, happy to figure out how to fit your capabilities into what we're trying to do. So that's number one. Number two is that, yeah, there's just more members of Congress need to see this as a priority. And it's easy to say it's a priority. They need to hear from their constituents. They need to hear from the businesses and their communities. They need to see that ignoring this has a tangible impact on their constituents. And so I would certainly encourage everyone to, people might be surprised, writing and calling your congressperson actually has an impact, especially when people do it a lot. They pay attention, their staffers take the calls, they read the letters, and they send that information up. So that is always an effective way. I think another way is to just make sure that if you're interested in this issue, you need to read up on the technology, but you also really need to read up on the law and the policy behind this. 
And you mm. need to read up on the economics. I think it was, maybe it wasn't Dan Gear, but I think it was him that said, was it amateurs study security, professional study economics? And a lot of the problems in this space are so tough because of the economics behind it. It's very easy to just say, oh, this is a great idea. Why doesn't industry do it? But if you don't understand the industry incentives behind it, you won't understand why it's been such a problem for 20 years and why we still haven't made progress on X, Y, or Z issue. And so I think it's really important for anyone who's interested in getting involved to study technology, policy and the law, and the economics behind all of it. All right, Ben, what do you think? One of my favorite things about that interview is the metaphor that he made between public health and cybersecurity. And it's mm. so well-timed that in the report that he wrote, he used an example based on public health. But it's this idea that it's a problem that experts bring up. You know, you have infectious disease experts during non-pandemic times saying, guys, this is going to be a big problem. You know, if there's a highly transmissible respiratory disease, we're all going to be really screwed. You have cybersecurity professionals saying, guys, if there's a major cyber attack on our critical infrastructure, you know, we're going to be screwed. Right. And no one ever really listens to them. I mean, as as he said in the interview, <laughs> people might say like, all right, we'll throw a little bit of money here to ameliorate the risk. Mm-hmm, but nobody mm-hmm. ever takes it seriously enough until it actually happens. You know, and now with the cyber attack that we've seen over the past few weeks in this country, combined with what's happened with the pandemic, you know, these events that are unlikely to happen do end up happening. Uh, so I just yeah. thought that was a really interesting metaphor for him to use. Yeah, yeah, I'll tell you, I, I have come to believe uh, over the years that we are a reactive species. We are we are not good at getting ahead of problems. No, uh, I mean, there are a few of us general. who are, you know, good at, at analyzing risk and anticipating risk, you know, especially in the emergency management field, which I'll give a shout out to. But, yep. you know, for most people, it's just getting to the next day. We have a limited number of resources. Why should we be spending billions of dollars on something that might happen in the future? Well, it turns out there there are good reasons to do that. Yeah. Well, again, uh, our thanks to David Forsey uh, for joining us. He's from the Aspen Institute. That uh, effort is called the Cybersecurity Collaborative Network. If you're interested, uh, do a search for that. I'm sure you can find all sorts of information about it. We thank him for taking the time for us. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producers are Kelsey Bond and Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. 
Thanks for listening. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now.